Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. This is episode 228. We're recording this live on December 9th, 2021. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hello. Isn't it great to be here again? It is great to be here again. No time travel this week. Um, no. <laughs> we do have a great show for you all tonight. We're going to be talking about um, the Mars mission uh, and how the astronauts are worrying scientists by increasing their autonomy in remote isolation. And later, we're going to answer some questions from the community about mustering up the motivation to work on your tasking, how to negotiate salary through counter offers, and how to deal with difficult clients who don't know what they want. But first, let's get some programming notes out of the way. Uh, first up, I just want to talk quickly about our holiday schedule for everyone's awareness here. Next week, the 16th, we're going to have a normal show. It's going to be uh, Barry and myself hanging out here uh, like we normally do. You can find us streaming if you want to join us there for one last push before the holidays. We do have holiday music now to accompany our pre and post show. Uh, we <laughs> On the 23rd, we're going to be off for the holidays. Um, no show that week. But then we'll be back on the 30th, which will be our last show of 2021. And we're going to be re recapping every single human factors news story of 2021. So if there's anything that slipped through our cracks, you know, we only cover one show a week here. Uh, so there's a lot that we may have missed. So please join it. I, I, I need a total count. Maybe I'll have that for you all next week. Um, or at the end of that show, maybe you'll have to tune in anyway. And then uh, we'll be back on January 6th. So that's our upcoming schedule. Um, another programming note here social thoughts those are out there um the, we're now calling them you choose the news and we had our first one this last week uh, everyone voted on twitter and this story actually won by a pretty large margin across both our patrons and our uh our our twitter poll so if you want a voice in choosing what goes on the show we're giving 20 percent of the total vote to our broader listener base so there's that. We're also still producing these TMCs, Human Factors Minutes. We got two more left, uh, and we we have some. Um, we have a lot of different voices in there. We're trying to get a bunch of different people from our lab to read these things, so it's not just me droning on. And last but not least, uh, next Friday, December seventeenth at one p.m. Eastern, we're uh, well. I'm going to be moderating an HFES Presidential Town Hall, so I'm going to be uh, with. Chris Reed and Carolyn Summerich about um, human factors, you know, latest human factors industry news and uh, trends. And it's just an opportunity to talk to the folks behind HFES and, and see what's up. So if you have questions, I think the HFES folks put that on their Twitter uh, and, and you can reach out to them directly with questions. Anyway, it's part that's that part of the show where we get into the news. So let's just get into the news. That was a bad transition. Yes, this is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. Barry, what's our story this week? Our story this week is looking at a simulated Mars base that got kind of rebellious and it's been worrying scientists. So early this month, six people began their tenure in an immense experiment. It's either your greatest dream or your worst nightmare. They're living in a simulated extraterrestrial colony whilst being monitored by its builders. It's all part of Project Sirius, an eight-month off-world settlement experiment taking place in Moscow. 
Among those analysing the specifics, one research team has noted two striking outcomes. Members of the Off-World, uh, sorry, Off-Earth Society have been growing increasingly autonomous, and they progressively communicated their feelings less often with mission control. At face value, strong independence seems really a promising, promising thing to have in a potential Martian society. So if settlers uh, perceive full control of their mission, they'd function confidently on their own and work collaboratively, drawing their comfort with each other. With each other. They could benefit later interplanetary endeavours by um, easing individual anxiety and enhancing group cohesion for carrying out protocols, which makes sense. But on a deeper level, letting go of mission control's hands invites some challenges. It's been said that the negative side is that the mission control loses the possibility to understand the needs and problems of the crew, which consequently hinders mission control's ability to provide support. And then if they take that a step further, if the crew achieves a super high level of autonomy and cohesion, there's another potential concern. They might seek complete detachment from external governing structures. Basically, they're worried about um, humans that are situated on Mars revolting from Earth. So the crews in the simulator missions tend to reduce their communication uh, with mission control during the isolation. And that's been the main outcomes of that um, project sharing their needs and problems less and less, with rare, rare exceptions such as really mission-critical events like landing simulations and things. So that could be quite a, an, an interesting outcome and something to bear in mind for future Mars missions. What do you think of that, Nick? Look, I think, uh, look, I, I think it poses a very real challenge of being isolated on a remote base on another planet far away from home where... Communication with mission control is extremely delayed. Do I see a mutiny forming against Earthlings? Hell no. This is not. Look, you're you're telling me that a crew of like six people <laughs> on the on Mars are gonna go? Nah, Earth, we don't need we don't we don't need y'all. <laughs> no way, no way. It just seems a little bit of a ridiculous stretch to me to. Um, talk about that but I thought this would be a good uh, story to talk about in, in the sense of what sort of impacts isolation and confinement have on uh, you know astronauts and sort of the the human factors issues about space flight kind of remote bases that type of thing but I'm, I'm curious what your initial thoughts on this article are Barry well, quite frankly, talking about anything about going to Mars, and I'm I'm there. I'm in fact, I'll go to Mars. I'm I'm da completely down with that. I think it's it's really interesting because it does delve into some almost some of the the deeper psyche of of the human of the human condition because you know there's so many movies and stuff around there around going to Mars and what happens if you go out alone and you get stuck there. You know, The Martian is a really good example and and others to boot, but it it does give you that idea about. What would you do if you're uh, if you're in that position of um, of being isolated, and if you find that you can survive on your own? And I do, like like I said, happening on the first mission, unlikely. But it does sort of raise the point that that we assume that Mars will just be an off-world colony. That he, but it, when it gets to a certain point, it's going to have its own autonomy. There's going to be that level of it, and will we be happy? Um, to say, yeah, yeah, Mars, you, you go ahead and do your own thing. So I think it's a future problem. I don't think it's going to happen next. I don't, I don't think it's something that um, Elon Musk is worrying about right now when he sends his first starship up there. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think, yes, it, it could be. I think the transition to independence is going to be a, a larger discussion about when that happens and how that happens. 
Uh, but yes, I, I don't think it's going to happen within the first couple missions. And it's it's so odd that we're seeing that with um, with this group here, you know, in that, that's doing these tests here on Earth. And I'm wondering if that's just beca- uh, 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 because they know they're here on Earth. I mean, simulations can be incredibly realistic, but at the same time, like in the back of their head, they have to know they are here and that if anything goes wrong, it's not going to be the end of the their world, right? Yeah, I, th- I think in many ways it, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because um, it's almost no matter where you, as soon as you cut off isolation from people, it does have um, dramatic effects and impacts into, in, into ourselves. And, and if this is, you know, it's it's an eight month experiment, but actually, this is it's, they've only just kind of started it, and they've already seen these these this element of of um, people trying to t- trying to look after themselves a bit more, I guess. Um, and it does it it works both ways. So we we've obviously looked at this from me. Would the um, would the users um, work? You know, move away from the from that that controlling hand of mission control, but also. Does it speak a lot about the the way that we use mission control as well, and the fact that they feel that they have to control every single aspect of uh, of what's going on, um, and maybe that we need to change the way we're thinking about that as well? So no, I think there's there are uh, yeah we we can talk about a whole lot of stuff here, but actually there's there's some real significant human factors issues. Yeah, let's that. let's talk about some of the human factors issues. I think I think. There's the obvious human factor stuff that I feel like we bring up a lot of time, but it's it's absolutely mission critical that we bring that stuff up to revisit it within the context of each of these news stories because they take on different meanings, right? So if you think about some of the obvious human factors applications like cognition, you're you're trying to as an astronaut on a Mars base, you're trying to understand situation awareness. And I think that's something that mission control largely doesn't have awareness on. They're trying to get that information from the people who are there. And so if you if there's, you know, obviously two groups of users here, much more subgroups if you want to look at it that way. But you have the astronauts and you have mission control and mission control is trying to get as much SA situation awareness on what's going on in the environment as they can. And their direct link is with the astronauts. There's obviously other uh, instrumentation that will provide data as well, and they get that. But to really have that context of what's going on, that's going to be critical. Now, there's also other things that are fairly obvious as well. There's going to be cognitive workload associated with the astronauts. Maybe they feel like they're too busy to communicate with mission control because they're so focused on the tasking that they need to do. Uh, you know, and then you also have sort of the usability and effectiveness of these interfaces that they're using remotely. And if they don't need help using those things, they're going to be less likely to reach back to mission control. So maybe like I'm just thinking here and this is kind of jumping into the application a little bit, but maybe the design of these things requires uh, permission from mission control to use them in certain cases. Like you need a signal from Earth to use some things. So that way it encourages communication back and forth. Anyway, that's just like high level stuff. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about from the basic human factors issues with some of this stuff? Yeah, well, I mean, that's it. The, um, you, you just talked about the, the the level of support there. So let's talk about mission support. So 
we've really got to have a decent understanding of all the um, the human controlled components and basically the, the task analysis, if you will. Um, really looking at the at decomposing them so th there's no surprises. And even if there there's no real, you know, the communications level low, uh, get lower, because we've got the really good understanding of the of the tasks and, and the uh, both the automated ones and the, the human controlled ones, everybody should still at least know what's going on and have that level of alignment. Everything that they that they need should all be online. So all your documentation and your procedures, make sure that that that's all there. And if we if we if we've got to build into this sort of stuff that the um, that the monitoring and in-flight activities is is remote as much as possible. So the mission control has a really good situational awareness of what's going on at the um, at the mission as well, um, without having to resort to talking to the crew if they if for whatever reason. Because it might not just be that they don't want to talk to them. They might be, as you say, that they're, they're so heads down in the tasks they're doing and surviving because they're going to be in that sort of survival mode. But there's also other issues as well, and I don't know if you've got any thoughts around. So I don't know maintenance and maintenance and logistics. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's the thing where I think this autonomy comes from is because you have um, they're trained to basically work on the stuff that they need to fix while they're out there because you can't send a technician to fix these specialized tools or these specialized programs or anything that they're using. So you need to train the astronauts to do that. And I feel like that type of um, autonomy to be able to fix something that you are working with is is a big contributor to some of this this feeling of wanting to be autonomous. You know, I don't need mission control because I was trained on this. I know it. And I like we're kind of downplaying um, the training that astronauts get and and the selection process for who gets to go on these missions is very carefully selected because it's it is uh, a real important concern. And that's why we do these tests on Earth before we do the real thing, because personality factors have a large uh, impact on this. And um, in terms of some of the the training bits, right, you know, you're you're training these users for normal events, uh, normal repair normal replacements of parts and pieces. You're also training them for unusual circumstances. What happens if a sandstorm comes through? What happens if, um, you know, a completely unlikely event happens and uh, an asteroid like hits <laughs> Mars or something? Like, I don't know. They probably don't receive training on that. I think at that point you're just kind of, um, well, we'll, we'll fly by the seat of our pants because it's incredibly unlikely. But you know, they, they are trained to kind of adapt and respond to these situations. And maybe that empowers them to feel less dependent on mission control for some things. But let's talk about crew performance. Do you want to do you want to dig into that a little bit? Yeah, I think I mean, it's going to be really interesting, isn't it, to have the um, how how we're going to monitor the, the way that the crew actually perform. And what does it mean to be performing at an optimum level when you're on another planet? Because there's a whole lot of um, different bits that, bits that come into play. So when we do when we design in, we've got to make sure that we um, pull in the uh, human reliability data. Because if we don't design for um, you know optimum reliability, then you're so far away, and literally you are like going to be years away from being able to get some get get kit redesigned. You, we've got to get it right first time, i.e., right before we um, be, be, before we leave Earth. 
but also there's just a whole difference in the planet itself. So obviously a um, a Mars day is longer than an Earth day, which is something that is so inbaked into us. It's a bit like gravity. You know, we, we're just so used to gravity that that was a big step for when we went into space was just the idea of um, actually how do you survive in in a, in a zero-G environment? You have to do lots of exercise because your bone density starts going, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to have issues with um, you, you, your body's going to want to react to um, the, the, the Martian day. So what does that mean if your day is longer? Um, what does that mean to your um, circadian rhythms and and your, your sleep patterns and things like that? So how we perform in what could be seen as a as a more stressy environment just purely because of the length of the day? Um, yeah, that that's going to have a um, surely going to have a big, big big impact, and that's going to be something that's going to be quite hard to model on Earth because of the nature of we we're on Earth and we have the Earth day. So yeah, it's got it's going to be interesting to see how the um, the differences in in planetary um, environment affect our crew performance. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the isolation piece and the confinement piece, right? Because we're we're sticking humans in a tube and sending them all the way to Mars and sticking them in a base where that's the only place in which they can mm. be fully, you know. Uh, <laughs> human otherwise they have to have some sort of exosuit that protects them from the environment um and and so we're talking about confined spaces we're talking about isolation so let's think about um isolation confinement so you know as we're looking into moving astronauts into the deep space we're starting to look at some of these new stressors right this extreme isolation uh is something that we've not really as as humanity had to deal with before right um the furthest we've gone is the moon and really with that i think it was uh the, the people that were chosen for moon missions were very carefully selected took took a certain kind of individual to go there right and so um i i think there is a lot more uh care and consideration that goes into that than people realize. So you're looking at sort of um, traits like adaptability and resiliency uh, for people to live in these close quarters. And like we like you talked about, right, these these stressors kind of impact the body and, and mind in several different ways. So we're looking at isolation and confinement. This is almost like, uh, you know, solitary confinement in a way where you are given tasks to not go crazy. Um, and, you know, that just worsens over time. Uh, kind of becomes a occupational hazard for someone, like like working on a submarine, right? That's, that's kind of a apt comparison. Uh, they are underwater for weeks, months at a time. Mm-hmm. And um, depending on the length of the mission, you know, and, and so it's like, that's kind of, as close as we can come to understanding what some of these effects might have here on earth. Uh, I don't, do you want to, do you want to use that as a segue to go into some of the other stuff here? Well, I think there's a couple of um, issues, uh, points that is good to raise on this is this, because you could actually do when you go through your selection process, you could actually select people who are better at being in isolation, which on the face of it, would make a lot of sense because people who can be in isolation then put them in an isolated environment. But if you're then using that that as a springboard to um, start the Mars mission proper, so obviously the Mars mission proper really is to, you know, start um, 
um, the colony on Mars and reproduce and do all that sort of stuff. If you've got a whole bunch of people who don't talk very well with others, um, start colonizing a planet, does that mean the entire planet will stop talking to everybody else because they're all very antisocial and, you know, just very um, inward looking rather than everything else? Is that the planetary um, culture? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So do you sort of breed that through? I think that whole piece will be really fascinating. Um, and we talk about the, um, we mentioned it a few times um, so far around the training and things like that, then the way that you're selected as a, as a, as an astronaut and you know, no matter which, which country you're coming from. But what I, one of the recent missions that I thought was completely fascinating was the Inspiration4 mission with SpaceX. And they chose four civilians to to do that but even then they chose four civilians at random uh, some at random some some not and actually we could probably talk about um it could be an entirely new episode about how, about the selection process because i thought that was absolutely fascinating but they still had to go through quite a significant amount of training just to be able to do it. it's not like they could say right you're chosen jump on away you go there's still an awful lot of work to be done so um we've still got a long way to go with, with the whole training piece can you imagine if they did just throw people on a on a spaceship and say go <laughs> yes, see yes. what happened like that would be a completely unethical well, experiment but would you would you go would if, if somebody if so i mean it's it's the million dollar question if somebody said to you nick tomorrow we've got, we've got a spare seat um do you fancy 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 being on the first trip to mars would you go right well yes but like at the same time it's like i don't know how to i don't know how to survive g-force without passing out right so like i'd wake up in space like what is yeah g-force is a mine i mean it's it's, it's surely it's a small thing to um to deal with you know and then what would i do like i'm there and I, I mean yeah count me in but like at the same time it's there's there's a lot that i'd want to know going into it um <laughs> i don't know um I'm, I'm questions afterwards after i'm strapped in and oh okay what well, what does this button do then um oh, but just press go it's fine that's um I'd love it. I think I'd absolutely love it. <laughs> it's, it's rather sad, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, so did you did you want to take this next point, or did you want me to take it? No, you take it. Go for it. Okay. All right. So so let's let's jump back to sort of real world examples, right? You talked about the mission selection, but I think um, we, we talked about the the instance where you have sort of the submarines being the real world example i think a lot of this can also be you know service members on long deployments that, that that's another good example of this type of thing um and and what we find with those service members on those long deployments they they crave some of the basic human needs right like smell of grass sight of a sunny day um feel of their feet on the earth the ground mm -hmm. and when you take away those familiar experiences and put them in a metal tube or put them on a ship uh, where they can't necessarily feel those things, you know, like on a ship, you can go out on the deck occasionally and feel the sun, but then you're out in the middle of the ocean. It's not much to do when you do that. It really impacts a person's motivation. Um, and over extended period of times, it can affect their ability to make decisions, right? If, if they're um, sort of being ground down and worn down, then they're, their decision making is impaired, and uh, you combine <laughs> you combine that with the other inherent issues of spaceflight, like gravity and radiation, and when you combine that with isolation and confinement, this is a, a huge mixing pot of psychological hardships that is really dangerous for people in space. Um, and so 
that's what we're talking about here with this isolation confinement of people in metal tubes in space. Uh, there's there's a lot that goes into it from the human factors perspective. So let's get back to the article. Um, and just to reiterate, right, th- th- this article is indicating that in a mission here on Earth, Mars base astronauts are effectively creating their own autonomy from mission control. And they are they're doing all this tasking uh, without necessarily communicating with mission control in in the way that we want them to. And it all comes back to that situation awareness. Uh, do we want to have some examples here of maybe what this looks like in the real world today? Because we do have astronauts up in the International Space Station right now. Yeah, we do. And they um, spend large parts of their day um, communicating with with, uh, with people on Earth in, in mission control in Houston. Um, they talk with um, with scientists, the doctors, you know, the reporters. They'll they'll do uh, live streaming. They'll do. Um, in fact, I think they have better internet connectivity up there than than potentially we do down here. Um, you know, they talk they talk to students, family, friends. All that. they've got constant engagement um, going on all the time, and without very much delay either. So you know, it it does happen um, really quite quickly. That luxury that ability to do almost that real-time uh, communication um you will you know when you start off on the mars mission then and you 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 launch you'll that'll be fine for a certain period of time but actually when you get further and further away that time delay becomes much bigger and so when you're on mars itself that is going to be a big drama because you're looking at you know um, a significant chunk of time you can't have a a normal conversation you've gone it's it's a you know uh, fire and forget wait and then wait for replies over a number of minutes um if not longer so that's going to be yeah. um really significant jumping in on that time communication so that's something we didn't even talk about here but we did talk about this when we were talking about the human factors of um basically flying a helicopter on Mars. I think it was early 200 episodes, if you want to go check out that episode. But we were talking about times uh, anywhere from 5 to 20 minutes of, of delay, depending on um, the distance between Earth and Mars at any given point. So if you're thinking about uh, you know, a, a conversation, you give a chunk of a conversation that gets sent to mission control. Five minutes later, they get it. And that's a best case scenario. And then they hear it perceive it they respond to it and then five minutes later it goes back to the astronauts so they are getting something back at best case scenario 10 minutes after they sent it at worst case scenario probably like an hour um Mm -hmm. or or even more if they need to research the answer here on earth you know there's there can be an acknowledgement hey you know request acknowledge we're researching it we'll send you back an answer when we have more uh expected time four hours you know something like that so that way there's something to keep them going but yes, when you're having that time delay, that's huge. That is huge. Uh, and when you're thinking about that in terms of the psychological impacts to astronauts, you're also um, not just communicating, like you said, with doctors and reporters and students, but you're communicating with family. And so what does it mean to have those conversations with family that are so delayed like that? Um, it's, it's effectively sending voicemails back and forth. And it's not really a conversation at that point. It's just canned messages that you need to kind of prepare. And, um, you know, you get it. Or let's say, you know, uh, I, I think there are situations in place where 
uh, family can't send bad news if they get mm. it while an astronaut is out there. But, you know, that's something that the astronaut can probably read on their family members if something's not OK. And so it might eat at them if they can't ask clarifying questions like, hey, you all right? Like, what's going on? Um, and I feel like that that's a huge impact. Uh, so, look, we talked a lot about astronauts themselves, the mission. But I think there's some really valuable things <clears throat> that we can use here on Earth. I mean, we already talked about some of the examples, like being in a tube or being in a ship uh, for some of these service people. And so do you want to talk about some of these um, real world examples? Yeah. So like you say, it's, there's, um, there are a lot of uh, situations that we do find ourselves in where you've got a, a small number of people around you and you have to cut yourself off from the outside world for whatever reason. So we, we mentioned the military, um, submariners, you've got um, anywhere up to, you know, say 150 odd people crammed within a small tube. So there's a lot of people there, but you can't do much with it. Uh, so you've got to learn to be basically live in each other's pockets uh, to, to make that work. You've got anything with sort of high risk environments. So that could be anything from, again, um, soldiers being deployed, but actually through to say nuclear cl uh, cleanup, like say like uh, things like uh, Chernobyl and things like that, where you've got where you've got to cut yourself off and um, uh, make things happen. We've got things like drone operators. They um, they're operating um, craft on the other side of the world in in different places, but from a very um, um, from a place where you don't actually have that much that much comes around you. So there is lots of examples here. Um, that we we can learn from and also do uh, deploy the the learning from these experiments too. Um, we also NASA doing um, a fair amount of research in themselves on mitigating the effects of isolation and confinement because that's also relevant to increasing our understanding of the these issues. Um, not only for NASA's own aims, but actually looking at uh, facing the aging population here on Earth. We're going to have. Um, as you get older, you become more isolated. Um, you lose friends, you lose family, uh, and things like that. And you do see some of them things coming around um, already. As, and that's before you get into their own mobility issues. Um, and so they can't get out as much as they did anymore. And, you know, they don't have the same access to family and friends. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff that is, is really, really relevant, um, not only to the space uh, the space race and, and our activities down there, but actually makes, uh, we can really distill some of them lessons for our own day-to-day -day living. Yeah, I think so. We'll just have to see what the future will hold. Uh, I think this is a great story. So thank you to our patrons and the general public this week for selecting our topic. And thank you to our friends over at Futurism and CNET for our news story this week. We got sources from both of them. If you want to follow along, join me on Office Hours when I do them, uh, where I find these news stories, and we do post the links to the original articles on our weekly roundups on our blog. You can uh, join us on our Slack or Discord for more discussion on these stories. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce but we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. 
Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons, especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. Thank you all so much for your continued support. Now, our treasurer got back to me and said, you're doing a great job not talking about Patreon during the commercial. So we're going to continue that trend. They gave me something else to talk about. Now we're talk about our website. Uh, it's been a while since we've actually talked about our website. And there's a bunch of fun stuff over there. I don't know if you all know this, but we have detailed show notes, including links to any guests that were on this week. So you can always find Mr. Barry Kirby over there uh, linked up to any of these episodes. You can find more information about him. We also have embedded YouTube videos so you can see how handsome he is. Uh, if you're if you're regularly an audio listener, you can you can see his beautiful mug and my ugly mug. Uh, and of course, we always have our news roundups out there. Um, like I said, we do those weekly and monthly. So that's a great resource for you all if you're looking to stay up to date with what's going on in the human factors field. Even if you just listen to this episode and want to keep up with the news, we do publish those every week. Uh, Like I said, we have additional information on our guests. We even have ways for you, the listener, to support the show by submitting your own stories. This is a way in which we get notified of some of the research that's out there. Maybe our sources miss it. And that happens from time to time where something big happens and we kind of, uh, it doesn't make it into our news stories, but we know about it from other ways. There's that, um, you can search through all of our episodes. We have a pretty robust search feature. So if you're looking for answers to specific questions, we do, it came from every week. And so sometimes your question might be answered and we're working on collecting a backlog of the questions that we've answered and publishing those separately. So that way they're resources for you all. But if you need to go and look for them, that's another way you can do it. We have full conference recaps of stuff that we've done and covered. Um, So if it's been a minute since you've checked out our website, go check it out. Take a look. Anyway, that's that's going to be that. Now we get into this next part of the show that we like to call. It came from. It came from. Yes, that's right. It came from this week. It's all Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over the Internet to bring you topics the community's talking about. If you find these answers useful, give us a like wherever you're at to help other people find this content. Uh, so we have three tonight. And I think. I think these are great ones, so let's just go ahead and get into them one by one. This first one here is from Skern Dude on the user experience subreddit. They write. How do you get past your mind not wanting to do any work? I have a, I have client feedback to review, Figma files to revise, research interviews to synthesize, LinkedIn messages to reply to, but I get completely exhausted from just opening a file. Anyone have tricks to help push through and get things done when they're feeling like their tank is empty and running on fumes? Barry, how do you tackle this burnout problem? Oh, this is um, almost a daily problem, I think, at, at times. I think... It's one of these things that you you let things pile up so much, and and then it gets to the point where you just um, you just can't touch it because you're you paralysis. You just get paralyzed by it. So I sort of have two or three different techniques. If it's just getting through the day, caffeine. 
firstly you know a good pot of coffee is is a is a great driver for to get you going but fundamentally actually i find creating a list um creating a, a simple checklist of things that you need to get done and don't think that you can solve everything in the in in the world in one day um try and segment it out it, it does require a bit organized and i'm you know I'm, I'm not exactly brilliant at practicing what i preach but i do find that if i've got to that point where i know i need to get stuff done and i'm i can be really uh one of them people that can put things off put things off especially if i know i've got a big deadline looming like my desk needs tidied and all that sort of stuff we all do it it's, it's just it's just natural create a list work out what you can um nail in the day um don't give yourself too um too hard a time if you don't make it make things achievable so yeah, make a list and work out, pick maybe two or three things to achieve either in the day or maybe in the morning, whatever it is. So you can see ticking, tick, ticking them things off. Um, actually a really good, um, there was a YouTube video about a, I think it was a Marine um, Colonel or a general or something saying, um, you know, if you want to be successful in life, the first thing you should do is make your bed. And I think, Brilliant advice because actually, if you get up, you make your bed. You've do, you've completed a task for the day. You've come, so you've achieved something. And even if you have the worst day in the world, you go back to a freshly made bed. And yeah, that's some great advice. Mm, I've I've loved it. I saw it on YouTube like ages ago, and I've always stuck with it. I don't make my bread very often, but uh, but I give it out to <laughs> advice to other people. Yeah, that's good advice. I think I think you get you gave a lot of good advice that I would agree with. I think. Um, obviously the list is, is one thing that I go to. And I jokingly, uh, in the pre-show said that, you know, when, when you're overwhelmed, you just go to your bed, uh, curl up in a ball and cry until you realize that you got to get stuff done. And I think one of the biggest, uh, drivers is to here, here's my strategy. I always tell other people what I'm doing and I give them what I think are realistic deadlines for those things. And so now I've communicated a deadline external to myself. So other people are expecting that thing at that time. And that pushes me to get something done. Now, if you're feeling comfortable with that, if you feel like you're not overburdened with work, you can certainly push up those timelines and try to get through more stuff. So that way it doesn't pile up on you. But that's one that's one place of success that I've always had. If you If you come up with some sort of timeline, uh, and and kind of build yourself a roadmap over the next 12 months of what needs to get done, right? Because then you can start that from that list of things that need to get done over the next 12 months, you can chunk that out and say, okay, well, six months from now, what do I need to get to there? What do I need to get to do next week? And you have all this stuff to do, and it seems insurmountable when you put it all together, but if you start assigning dates next to those line, line items, then it becomes much more manageable because... You're you're effectively triaging your uh, your list and you're prioritizing and that process of prioritizing and triaging everything that you need to do. Well, maybe I don't need to do those Figma files right away. Maybe that can wait till next week. Maybe this client feedback review actually feeds into something that I need to do two weeks from now. And so I should probably do that. So that way it's ready to go. And. The research interviews, that actually plays into the client feedback. So maybe I do that first and then the client feedback. So it all kind of um, becomes more clear when you can start to set these deadlines for yourself. And the big part, like I said, communicate it externally. So other people know when to expect that. You've now put a, a deadline on it and make it realistic. Make it realistic. That's the that's the most critical part of this advice is make it realistic. Otherwise, you won't be able to stick to it yourself. And that doesn't help anybody. 
It just makes you look bad. Any other thoughts on that one, Barry? Um, yeah, just self-honesty. <laughs> um, just yeah. if you're if things are going pear-shaped, then you just be honest with yourself and know that you've got to rejig your plan. Otherwise, you'll throw the entire plan away. Um, and then you're almost back in a worst case because you feel like you failed. Be honest with yourself. If things aren't, if yeah. things aren't getting done, that's fine. Re, just reschedule it. Redo it. Yep. Agree. All right. Let's get into this next one here. Counteroffers. This one's written by Biography Biology on the Human Factors subreddit. Hey, all I live in the Boston area. I have a master's in human factors and ergonomics and a bachelor's in psych. I graduated my master's this past summer. I was just offered a position in medical device sector uh, coming in at, I'm, I'm just going to say a certain amount, just to make this generalized, at a certain amount with a certain amount of bonus, a 5% bonus. Currently, I'm working uh, as a UX researcher, as a contractor in the life sciences. Uh, so about the same amount if it was a year-long contract. However, it was only a 12-week contract. I previously interned in medical device and pharma. Uh, what are your all thoughts on counter-offering? Uh, should I go perhaps up 5%? I see mixed reviews in traditional engineering forums, uh, forums about counter-offering. You're at your first real job, run the risk of the company rescinding their offer altogether. You don't have much leverage, et cetera. Should I just take what's on the table and put some time under my belt? This is a medical robotics division. Just curious about differing perspectives. Cheers. So Barry, this is somebody fresh out of school. They are approaching a job. They don't know how to value their worth or how to even counter something, how would you go about this or, or what advice would you give? So a bit of advice I was given a while ago is always turn down the first offer. However, I think that needs to be caveated. So the whole reason you turn down the first offer really is generally, um, certainly if you're um, new, uh, newer to the field, shall we say, uh, it's generally within the company's interest to offer, to basically lowball you a bit and see if they can get away with um, getting you on board for a bit cheaper than what what they budgeted for or what they anticipated because we all try and get a bargain don't we so we we shouldn't really expect companies to be any different so on that perspective i think um it's all it is generally a, a fairly decent idea to to say thank you very much for the offer um really great however the i think the, the numbers are a bit low um yeah putting a counter offer um maybe of you know it, it it depends what it is that you either genuinely genuinely feel it's a really low offer, of which point then you know what you then counter with what you think is a reasonable offer, or if you're just trying to eke out that little bit more, then um, then it, it kind of it's kind of down to how you feel. However, there's a flip side to the argument as well, in that if you if you really think it, it is a good offer, or if you think it's, if you think it's a good offer for what your circumstances are and you think it's appropriate. Um, don't, you don't have to necessarily counter just for the sake of countering. Um, fundamentally, it's all about having appreciation of what you're worth and what you need. And and so if you have, before you go in for some roles or, you know, when you get an offer like that, have a discussion, have a chat. I think we've mentioned in when we've answered similar questions previously, um, we have an absolute fascination of, of hiding um, 
um, hiding salaries from each other. And and some companies, um, also in the UK, I think, because I think we mentioned in the US, you, you can't actually do that, um, about, um, you know, promoting what, what different people's, what different people are on and that type of thing. We should have more open and honest conversations about value and worth. Because I remember when I first started running my own consultancy, I, um, I struggled to understand how to value my, uh, my time. And therefore, what should I be pitching my numbers at? Um, I'm 10 years in now, and I, even now, I sometimes sometimes do struggle with that, um, particularly with, with new fields and new clients. So I think for, to, in, for my own summary is um, generally reject the first offer and, and ask for more because generally we, we, we try and lowball people. Um, but don't be greedy. I think um, have a if you don't just go for extra cash just because you think you can, and that's probably more people who are um, further on in their career. But what about yeah. you, Nick? What do you think? Should, am, yeah. I, am I wrong? I, I think that's great advice. I think um, the caveats that you've listed are are appropriate. I think um, first job out of school, it's probably okay to come back, you know, asking for a couple thousand more. I don't think. Look, they they the company wants to hire you. You made it through the process. They have given you an offer. They want you on their team. And so unless you give them something completely unreasonable, at which point you just turn down the offer, um, <laughs> you know, unless you give them something completely unreasonable, I think it's in their best interest to at least try to meet meet that. And if they can't, they'll be honest with you and say, you know, it's just really not in our budget. We've already tried our hardest to get you as much as we can. Um, you know, they'll be honest about it. And if if they're a good, transparent company. And so... Yes, I think if you want to come come at it from that perspective, come come with a couple extra thousand. But if you don't want to risk it, I, I don't really see I don't really see that happening. Honestly. If yeah. if you know, I've been directly involved in the hiring process for a while and I I've never had that happen where somebody either came back with a little bit more, it's either we've we've already offered them as much as we could, or, um, you know, we, at least in in my case, we've ever we've already hired uh, uh, offered them as much as we could, um, or we just didn't offer enough for what they were looking for, and they turned it down. It happens. It's just a part of this negotiation. Um, it's a contract between you and the employer that says, "Hey, this is how much we value your work. This is how much I value my work." And you're just trying to meet somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, and I think, like you said, there's larger questions if you're further on in your career and, you know, they, it's in the tens of thousands difference. That's a tougher situation. I think in this situation, 5%, that's not a big deal. Um, you know, if it's in the budget and they're able to do it, if they really want you, they'll do it. I just, I don't, see you upsetting a company <laughs> like i don't know i i don't know you you've hired people too like i I've, I've just never had that happen where i've i've seen somebody come back with you know a couple thousand and i'm like can we do this can we do this i really want this person um can we make this happen is there any way that we can find that in the budget because this person is great i want them here um they they're on it they're even even fresh out of school like they know their stuff they're you know <laughs> they seem like a great student and a great person to get along with. They're going to gel with the environment. Let's do it. I, 
I don't know, as as somebody who's in that hiring process, I would I would want to try my hardest to accommodate that because that is what they're asking for. And unless they came back with, you know, like, hey, I'm expecting, you know, 30,000 more than you uh, offered, then I'd be like, I'm really sorry. That's completely out of the budget. We can't make that happen. Um, if your priorities change or something happens in the future, please let us know that type of thing. Um, but I, you know, don't, I guess that don't be greedy comes in a couple thousand. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think in many ways, if a company, if you went and asked for, um, more from the company and the company just turned you down flat and said, no, it's not happening anymore. Then you probably didn't want to work there, the work there yeah, anyway. Actually, exactly. Opening up the conversation about being open and honest about um, about what what your expectations are, and I think this does actually apply quite significantly more to women than it does to men as well. Agree. Because it is quite well known um, and quite well researched that um, that men are more likely to ask for a raise than than a woman is, and so I think we need to um, encourage them sort of conversation. So if you're in the hiring position. And um, you know, you almost want to encourage the uh, the the women to, to get in on your to get in on your team, and you know, encourage them conversations about salary and stuff. So um, to make sure that you are offering something that that is tangible for them. Yeah. So. All right. Let's get into this last one here. This one's by Budget Iron Seven Five Five One. It's a throwaway account on the user experience subreddit. Dealing with difficult clients. I'm currently dealing with a set of clients who don't know what they want, expect perfection, see their job as tearing down the work, micromanage, redo the work, ignore the strategy, waste their own budget, move the goalposts, are afraid of making mistakes. In spite of these difficulties, the team is doing exceptional work, but it's slow going, expensive, and sometimes demoralizing. Looking for your best and worst war stories and any tips you may have for dealing with exceptionally difficult clients. Barry, what are your war stories and how do you deal with somebody like this? Um, <laughs> uh, war stories I probably should avoid. Um, well, no, actually, th there has been a number of um, times where, and it's interesting, projects will go really, really well and then suddenly um, they start going a bit pear-shaped because people suddenly start demanding things that are either out of scope or out of remit or um maybe maybe expectations weren't laid out clearly to begin with and i've sort of been in um a bit i was in a position where i got we got asked to build a prototype um a prototype database to do some significant amount, amount of analysis the the tech the technical expert who was working with us on the client side they uh, they went off and so we were left with a uh, just a project manager and that project manager didn't really know what they were looking at and suddenly started demanding all sorts of things like um, software compliance records, uh, re release uh, material, um, it to be completely um, um, tested and all that sort of thing. And all we were meant to be providing was a piece of prototype software, not a fully finished, uh, finished product. And so we suddenly got into that situation where I was like, well, hold on, you're being, you're asking for low T, you're not actually paying us to do this we've already done etc etc um and it started getting really abrasive so where i the way i dealt with that in the end is um all the way through the project I, as, as friendly as you might be with your clients and things like that always keep your paper trails always keep any decisions make sure any decisions that you've made or not um 
write them down, make sure that they, you know, every, you know, at least keep, you know, keep them sort of records. But fundamentally, you've got to set up the right behaviors and the right attitudes right from the off with the project. Um, and we've had this, um, we've had another project as well, which was, which was kind of um, almost as described with, with, with this, uh, with, with this problem, because we had um, clients who were not necessarily that au fair with what they, what the realities of what they were asking were. And we were quite clear right at the beginning, right? These are the use, user stories we're going to be doing. This is the the scoping of what we're going to be doing. This is what you can expect. This is the outline. But when you get stuck into it, it's very much of the, they keep on coming back, wanting it to be an absolutely perfect. And we're only going for an alpha beta release. Um, but they wanted to be like sort of fully polished rather than just getting out on the market. And, and we had to, but that's at the time where you have to get your um, your, your big trousers on, and and actually rather than just trying to bunker down and hope it goes away, which is kind of the your mentality. You 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 kind of do want to do that. You want to sort of sit down and say, oh, hopefully they'll stop doing this soon. You've actually got to you know nip it in the bud and actually ha- call that meeting and say, look, we see what you want to do. We know you want a perfect product straight away, but you're not there. You're either you know the the amount you're your funding into the project isn't enough. The amount, you know, the, this is where and why. This is what your expectation was to begin with, and this is where we're at. You've got to have discussions. You've got to talk, um, and it can be really, really difficult to do. But um, yeah, chat to your clients and bring them yeah. on board. Yeah, open communication is key there. I think. Look, like there's, um, <laughs> there's, there's two different conversations, right? There's, there's going off the path that you initially set forth which I think is a different discussion. You give the client what they want. Um, but if they have these demands like expecting perfection and they continuously tear down your work and micromanage, I mean, look, at that point, if they are micromanaging and redoing the work, ignoring the strategy, wasting their budget, they're the ones doing that. Look, like there's always something to be said about uh, keeping relationships for future work. And, but I mean, do you want that future work if this person is, if this client is like this to work with in the beginning? So that's another consideration that you have to take into it. Maybe just get through the job, find other sources elsewhere. Like it, as a human factors practitioner, as a UX person, this can be a very difficult thing to try to reconcile with a product where you know what's best for the user because you've talked to them. You know, understand what they want, what they need. The client wants something different. And you have to negotiate between those two parties. Look, ultimately, you are working for somebody. And if they want one thing and the client, the, the, the user wants another, do your best. Pick your battles where it's going to matter most. Otherwise, you know, ultimately, the people who are paying you are the ones responsible for money in your pocket. So it's it's a it's it's a sucky answer, but that's kind of how it is. Um anyway. <laughs> how about that for an ending? Why don't we get into one more thing? This needs no introduction. This is just where we have a chance to talk about one more thing. Barry, what is your one more thing this week? Well, okay, so we've got, I've got my um, to to go off piece and talk about my own podcast a second. Um, we've got the the twelve or two final Christmas special being recorded uh, next week, and what we're doing is um, if, it's sort of stealing the idea from you. So you should feel um, a certain sense of um, 
ownership of the accomplishment. Yeah. 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 No, we're going to try and go through our back catalog of around 40 episodes and work out what our favorite, uh, favorite episodes are. Um, so myself and a, um, colleague who I work with Joe Paulson, we're going to sit down and work our top five each. But what I'm asking, um, people on that on our social media to do is to then give us some insights of what what are their favorite episodes and so this might lead us into some sort of annual thing where we rate the um we're at the the episodes from the year but as we have done this before it's like go for it all 40 let's just let's just pick the top five so it's going to be interesting next week i think we'll we'll see what some of those um see what some of them episodes are yeah, might hurt somebody's feelings if they don't make the top five. But I hear all of our listeners here at Human Factors Cast really liked that episode that you did with that that feller from that fine program. So um, I don't know which one you mean, mate. Yeah, Sorry. I don't either. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so my one more thing this week. Um, I'm actually getting back in the swing of doing stuff for myself. Uh, you know, we we moved earlier this year, and with that, I lost a lot of. Um, I guess time or or commitment to my own personal like reading backlog, right? So I've been reading a lot of books and comics again and starting to get back into that because you can see on my shelf behind me there's like four books that I haven't read yet. Uh I have like a hundred and something odd issues of comics to catch up on. And I've started slowly doing that night after night. And I've made it a point to at least do one chapter or one issue every night just to get back into the swing of things. And it has been, um, it's been really refreshing to kind of count on that every night, just to kind of progress a little bit, right? It's that, it's that making your bed in the morning. Um, mm-hmm. but except I'm doing it in the evening right before yeah. bed. Yeah. Yeah. That's legit. Anyway, that's it for today, everyone. If you like this episode uh, and enjoy some of the challenges of working in space, we actually invite you to go check out episode 221. We took a look at using augmented reality to assist with some of those repairs in space. Give us a comment wherever you're listening of what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Slack or Discord communities. Visit our official website, like I gave all those fantastic examples of join our newsletter stay up to date with all the latest human factors news if you like what you hear you want to support the show there's a couple things you can do one wherever you're at you can leave us a five-star review that is free for you to do two tell your friends about us word of mouth really helps the show grow and three if you have the financial means it is the spirit of giving i don't know don't do that anyway give give somewhere else we don't need it need it but if you want to we have a paper for that as always links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to vote on their uh, favorite 1202 podcast episode? So they can find us at, on, I'm on Twitter at Baz underscore K, but also you can find their 1202 Human Factors Podcast episode, uh, episode uh, web, website even, hello, on 1202podcast.com. I think it's about time for us to finish. <laughs> I think so too. I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me streaming on Twitch for office hours occasionally and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. 
These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.